Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is Monday, January 16th, 2023. Still feels strange to be saying that. Um, and I'm honored to have with me today international legal expert and the UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territory occupied since 1967, Francesca Albanese. Francesca, welcome. Hello, thank you. So I am not going to waste time. We have a lot to get to. I'm not going to waste time reading your entire bio. The bio, a link to it and the full bio will be posted with the notes that will go along with this podcast. And as we talk, I mean, you're welcome to share any information on your background as we go. That's up to you. But I want to really just get right into it today. Um, I'm going to offer just a quick little bit of context. So and explain why we're talking today. So there's a lot going on these days, as always, with respect to the situation of human rights in the occupied territories. And here we're talking about actions of the Israeli government, uh, officials of the Israeli government, and the armed forces. And, And let's be clear, these include a lot of things that are important. We have had, since this new government came into place, we've had Palestinians killed almost every day, including a child yesterday. We are having the targeting of the mere raising and holding of the Palestinian flag. We have challenges to the um, status quo on the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif. We have continued and expanded demolitions of Palestinian property and new settlement plans. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on and on. Hanging over all of these actions and, and, and plans uh, is a very specific threat that a lot of people have been poke, bit worrying about and, and, and watching for a long time. And, and, and here we have, we're talking about plans and, and really well-advanced plans. Um, they advanced under the previous governments um, to, to forcibly eject approximately, I believe it's 1,200 Palestinians from their homes in an area of the Southern West Bank known as Masafariyata. Um, and, and folks who follow the podcast, we've done lots of podcasts um, over the past couple of years with activists from Masafariyata. I'll put links to all of that in the notes as well. So. These plans, and and this has been, I think, gotten some some social media attention and and some news. These plans have been accompanied by years of violent attacks carried out by Israeli settlers, um, attacks that the previous government demonstrated little interest in preventing or punishing. And and we have videos, many videos that document the IDF actively enabling these attacks by doing nothing, standing around, or even actively facilitating these attacks by, by what they did on the ground. Um, and, and all of this has been accompanied by a ratcheting up of pressure and punitive actions against Palestinian residents of Masafrayata who have sought to resist nonviolently and who've sought to bring the story of what is happening to them and their families to the world. So I'll put a lot of links in the notes that'll accompany this podcast to resources on Masafrayata and the activists and all of that. Um, but so I, I wanted to talk to you, Francesca. Masafrayata is by no means the first or the only area in the West Bank from which Israel has worked to remove Palestinian residents since since 67. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, international human rights experts have paid special attention to Masafariyata because what Israel is seeking to do there, in effect, clearing out all Palestinians from a huge area of land in order to use that land for Israel's own purposes, this is in the occupied West Bank. Um, In the eyes of legal experts, it has been said that this qualifies unequivocally as an act of ethnic cleansing and a war crime. And, and that's your area of expertise. So I wanna dive into the question of what it means, what ethnic cleansing means, why is this a war crime? 
and all the related questions to that. So if you're okay with that, before we jump in, um, I know that probably not everyone who's listening today knows about you and about your mandate and your position. So I wanna just ask you to quickly um, describe who you are at the UN, what you're doing, and what's the mandate of your work? Yeah, thank you, Lara, and uh, <clears throat> I, I'm happy to greet all your um, all the participants. Um, as a special rapporteur, um, a role that I have since um, May 2022, I am an independent expert who's been appointed by the Human Rights Council for a term of six years to report to the Human Rights Council and the General Assembly on an yearly basis um, on the human rights situation in the occupied Palestinian territories as of 1967, namely West Bank, East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. And I, I, I was appointed on my on my on my capacity as a legal expert who has devoted um, quite a few years to the question of Israel, Palestine, Palestinian refugees and the human rights situation in the occupied Palestinian territory. Um, I serve uh, as voluntarily and on this is why aside of it I also continue to work as um, in a number of universities teaching forced displacement and um, on migration and um, forced displacement in the Arab region with an organization called ART. So my main responsibility as a special rapporteur is to report to the General Assembly and the Human Rights Council on, on issues that are uh, fundamental to me. As you might have noticed, I've decided to keep the focus thematic. And this is why my first report was about the right of self-determination, because it's just very fundamental and still very unachieved for the Palestinian people in the occupied Palestinian territory. And I so want to continue to focus on, on specific themes, as well as I'm trying to interpret this mandate creatively, trying to try to uh, provoke debate and dialogue because the question of, um, of uh, I mean, the human rights situation in the OPT, it's either largely obscured or largely misunderstood. Absolutely. And I will include a link to your first report for people who want to read it. It is, it is superb and very disturbing, but really important. Um, as you said, your focus academically, and you, you've written about this, like you, you have a book on refugees, you've written about displacement. So let, let's dig into the Masafra Yatta um, story. Um, it, th this comes up in the news a lot, but there isn't a lot of, I think, in-depth um, accessible um, explanations. So first off, I wanna talk about the general. Um, what is a war crime? <laughs> You know, not everyone is an expert in international law. Isn't you know what is it? What is this supposedly shared system of values and governance on which this war crimes designation even rests? What does it mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay, makes sense to start with the with the with the basics because in fact many people would be confused uh, by seeing mm, the, the discussions unfolding around Masafar Yatas always associated to war crimes. So the designation of war crimes rests primarily on international humanitarian law, which is a body of law governing situations of um, armed conflict and, um, and occupation. So it consists basically of the Geneva 
conventions and um, the Hague regulations, whose main purpose is to protect and preserve humanitarian values at times of war. So what does it mean in practice? These norms regulate the conduct of hostilities, limiting the means and methods of warfare uh, to what is absolutely necessary to achieve the objectives uh, of the parties to a conflict. And also, and this is very important here, uh, humanitarian law, uh, which regulates uh, what, what might constitute a war crime, provides protection and humane treatment to, to persons uh, who do not or no longer participate uh, in, uh, in hostilities and are, are of particular importance, like civilians. So while many acts might violate the Hague regulations and the Geneva Convention. So while many acts might violate the law of war, not every uh, violation constitutes a war crime. A war crime is a serious violation of um, the laws and customs that apply in armed conflict or during an occupation, and it gives rise to individual criminal responsibility in international law. For example, willful killing, uh, willful causing great suffering or injuries uh, to body or health, uh, torture or inhumane treatment in situation of conflict, uh, depriving prisoners of war or other protected person of access to fair trial, unlawful deportation or transfer, or unlawful confinement. All these constitute war crimes. So, so the, there are there, there is a specific list of what constitutes war crimes. And already the, the examples I mentioned um, like particularly unlawful the deportation of transfer echo with the reality in uh, Massa Feriata, which we'll, we will have the chance to, to unpack. So that, that's great for a start. And, and so I guess you, you didn't use the term ethnic cleansing. So I want to ask you to delve into the term ethnic cleansing because that's a term that comes up often. Um, it comes up as a general a general claim of what is going on, but specifically with Masafariata, where you have a a plan to remove people. So, can you can you just talk about that term? And if there's a, a better term for us to be using for this kind of discussion, you know, explain that. Yeah, definitely. I think the term is uh, is correct, but under international law, ethnic cleansing does not constitute a legal category per se, and is not a war crime per se. The closest definition, the closest juridical definition of war crime, uh, sorry, of ethnic cleansing, dates back to the tragic events in former Yugoslavia in the in the nineties, where and in nineteen ninety four, an UN appointed commission of experts on concluded what is ethnic cleansing, what might constitute ethnic cleansing, basically the rendering of an area ethnically homogeneous by using force or intimidation to remove person of a given group from an area. And um, the experts particularly stressed the removal of the civilian population of another ethnic and religious group by violent and terror-inspiring means from certain geographic areas. So while, while since then there was never a proper convention or a proper, um, let's say, 
definition of the crime, uh, there are there is a list of of coercive practices that have been identified as ethnic cleansing, and within the the scheme that I said, meaning the the idea of remove one part of the population to replace um, to replace it with with another ethnic or religious group, um, acts like murder, arbitrary arrest and detention, extrajudicial execution, severe injury to civilians, deliberate military attacks or threats against civilians, and attacks on, on civilian structures like hospital, schools, and medical or um, educational personnel, all might constitute uh, ethnic cleansing. So you, you see, Lara, in a way, while ethnic cleansing does not constitute a war crime per se, most of the practice, practices authoritatively identified as constituting ethnic cleansing constitute crimes against humanity. And according to the jurisprudence of the International Tribunal on former Yugoslavia, um, there are also obvious similarities between a gen between ethnic cleansing and genocidal policy. Um, so it's it's a very serious issue. This is why it's totally correct to use it, but knowing that it's not the crime per se. Sorry. Understood. So ethnic, ethnic cleansing more describes the overarching policy and the, yeah. the policies that implement it. There, there might be the war crimes embedded in that, particularly in, in we're talking to today about displacement. Um, one right. last general scene setting question. So you talked about criminal criminal liabilities associated with ethnic cleansing or with war crimes. What obligations does international law place on countries of the world to intervene to prevent or punish war crimes in general? Uh, the international community has a huge responsibility to prevent uh, and address to challenge war crimes. Um, because first of all, uh, international humanitarian law, which I mentioned, the Geneva Conventions and its um, and its applicable, sorry, um, and its uh, protocols make respect additional protocols make respect uh, and ensuring respect for the provision of IHL and obligation erga omnes, which means that um, it rests upon each and every member state. It's so important that it can suffer no derogation and no exception. Also. So uh, stopping the war crime is an international responsibility, but also um, the Rome Statute requires states to cooperate with the International Criminal Court in the investigation and prosecution of, of, of war crimes, as well as uh, crimes against humanity, serious, serious crimes. The problem, the problem is that there are measures that can be taken. Even the, the, the UN Charter uh, uh, lists what remedies can be taken to put an end to a, a serious illegal act. Uh, for example, the UN Security Council has the power to uh, maintain and restore international peace and security, uh, to stop war crimes by using um, all its measures, including economic, political, diplomatic measures, which include sanctions uh, toward, uh, toward the, 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 the responsible states. And this is a responsibility, but this is where the problem starts because politics puts uh, puts uh, international law in the in the corner in the case of Palestine. All right, so hold on to that idea because we're going to circle back to that in a little while. 
Um, but now I want to actually talk about what's happening in Masafariata. And I know you're following this closely. So again, more scene setting than the stuff on the ground. We'll get to that in a second. But what are Israel's legal obligations under international law as the occupying power with respect to the residents of Misafariata? Setting aside the whole it's committing ethnic cleansing right now, assuming that it's trying to do everything exactly right, what, what are its obligations as the occupier? Yeah, so um, Israel's obligations as an occupying power and assuming that Israel had a legitimate basis to be the occupying power, which, as you know, uh, together with other legal scholars and my uh, and the, the special rapporteurs who preceded me, I contend. I don't. I I think that Israel, <laughs> as a, it shouldn't be the occupying power. But this is besides the point now, and we can come back to this. But under the under humanitarian law, Israel is under an obligation to act in good faith and take all the measures in its power to ensure public order um, and safety and respect the laws enforced in the country. It is to, in a way, it has administrative power to maintain um, public order and safety, first and foremost, in the interest of the occupied population. Um, and the expulsion of Masafar Yatta residents and destruction of uh, the individual, individual and collective properties, the seizure of land, constitute prima facie war crime, precisely because of that because Israel is acting um, violently against its obligation to ensure public order and safety under international law. In fact, it's turning its, uh, its administrative powers into, into a tool for conquest, basically. And, oh, yes. um, and for, for folks who aren't familiar with the, the history of the land in question, I'll put links into the notes as well on this, but it should, I think, be recognized here. Israel's claim to the land in Masafariata derives from having declared it a firing zone um, many, many years ago. And then over the years, it has um, allowed settlements to grow um, in the area. And this is now just straight up, you know, we're going to take this land for ourselves and, and declaring Palestinian presence on the area illegitimate based on the fact that Israel declared it a firing zone on top of them at some point. Um, and, and a lot of work has been done on that. I'll also put a link to a document that was um, that was found by an Israeli NGO that looks that does uh, freedom of information requests and looks at archives. And it's a document from the original era of Ariel Sharon when um, I think he was then the Minister of Housing Construction um, or Defense Minister, I forget which, where he actually, it was explicit that the idea of declaring the close, the, 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 the firing zone was to depopulate the area of Palestinians. That's, that's in writing. Um, so I wanna ask another question here, which is, because I think for a lot of people listening to this and coming into this who aren't familiar, I mean, since 1967, Israel has done a lot of arguably um, terrible and uh, illegal under international law things across the whole of the West Bank and even in, in 48 and inside the Green Line. Um, and, and, you know, we've had Palestinians lose their homes. We've had them lose their, their ID cards and, and their residency rights. We've had, you know, we've, lots of land has been taken. I think it's, it's more than 50% of the West Bank. So why does what is happening today in Masafariyata, the threatened forced removal of Palestinians from the entire area, why does that stand out compared to other actions that Israel has taken um, against Palestinians since um, 1967 or even 1948? 
Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's it stands out, no doubt, although it's not an isolated incident. But let me elaborate. So first of all, I would like to say that Masafariata has featured prominently in my work as a special rapporteur since the very first day of my mandate, because it was of the 4th of May, the decision of the Israeli High Court of Justice to confirm the uh, quote-unquote eviction orders that Israel has uh, issued for the almost 1,200 Palestinians inhabitants of Masafar Yatta. If, if I could just, just add, so this goes back mm -hmm. to the question of Israeli courts. For Again, for folks who are not following this, the eviction of Palestinians from the area, the ejection of Palestinians from their homes and land has been challenged now in Israeli courts for, for I think, almost two decades. Yes. Um, that came to a head under the last government when the Supreme Court pretty much um, ruled authoritatively that didn't, it didn't matter what the intent was behind the closed military zone, and it didn't matter pretty much anything the Palestinians could produce. The fact was that they were going to give it a legal stamp, um, mm -hmm. which I, I think for people who are listening to the debate around the, the efforts to change Israel's legal system right now, the justice system, and you see Palestinians saying that justice system has not been particularly good at rendering justice, this is the kind of example of mm. what I think a lot of us would say is the Israeli court system essentially becoming a, a factory for generating legal opinions that, that, that make legal whatever Israel wants to do in the West Bank. So that's the, the basis of that, the, the framing that people need to understand for that legal decision last May. So go ahead, sorry. No, no problem. So probably we should start really more granular uh, for those who are not familiar with the area. Masafer Yatta is a fairly underdeveloped area of uh, 36 uh, square kilometers comprising 12 Palestinian villages south of Hebron, which is in the south of occupied West Bank. It's occupied under international law. There is also a decision and advisory opinion of the ICJ on top of um, analysis of authoritative uh, um, uh, scholars and the UN, everyone. There is no dispute because I know that in Israel, many refer to the occupied Palestinian territory are disputed land. There is nothing disputed. This is occupied. So in this area, Israel should, if it was a, a legitimate good faith occupier, should just have um, exercise uh, administrative powers, which it does not. Now, under area, sorry, under the Oslo Accords, um, Israel controls, Masafriat is part of Area C, so the area where Israel has total um, civic and security control. But this doesn't give Israel the, the right um, to um, violate every right and freedom of the um, of the population under occupation. In fact, what you were saying is correct. What has happened is that um, I was talking right today, by the way. Let me let me do let me do this uh, detour. Right today, I was having a virtual tour in Masafariata, completely unrelated from this interview. And um, and uh, the the residents were taking me through uh, through the territory. One of them was stopped and detained for forty minutes. So for forty minutes, I said, "Let me be with you." I will stay on the line. So I saw everything that happened. And it was regular harassment. Just the person was fined because riding a car which had no permit um, on a road which is unauthorized because Israel doesn't authorize the construction of roads for the Palestinians. It's very complicated. And also 
the abusive manners could not be missed even if I was just on a on a on a zoom uh by the way however they were telling me um, that um the until until the 70s the residents of Masafer Yatta I've never seen an Israelis I mean an Israeli soldiers or Israeli vehicles what they saw was Israeli construction starting on the hills so the settlements started in the 70s and then the settlements expansion needed roads infrastructure and this is why the land of Masaferiata, which is not of prime interest for the, I mean, was not of the of a prime interest uh, back in the in the late uh, 60s because uh, for settlement constructions because it's a lowland um, while we know that the settlements have been establishment on the hilltops but that piece of land was necessary because it, it was needed for the development of the settlements, the settlements for uh, grazing purposes, for agriculture, for Aza, to connect the settlements. And so that land was to be taken. It was not that easy to expropriate the entire piece of, piece of land. So Israel declared declare the firing zone uh, 1918, about 20 years ago. And immediately the, uh, the, um, the residents uh, took the case to the court. They wanted to, um, to have the, the, the court repealed, uh, sorry, the eviction orders repealed. And there has been a legal battle of 20 years, which has concluded last year, as I was saying, on the 4th of May, when the court, the, the Israeli high court, confirmed the eviction orders. And so it exhausted, by this mean, the Palestinians, the residents of Masafariata, have exhausted all means to oppose the um the uh, expulsions i mean we call it eviction but it's an expulsion and this is where the criminal aspects of it comes uh, comes into play um and on on the 4th of january um the, the israeli authorities informed the palestinian authorities of their intention to proceed with the with the evictions of course already in the past months after may there have been destruction of houses and, the, and the, pe the people there have been forced to move into caves. There have been destruction and attacks, including uh, through violent means on on schools, and uh, and this is the this is the reality. Uh, so um, as you can see, yes. It's an isolated case in a way. No, it's not an isolated case. It's a case that stands out because of its volume, because 1,200 people. Uh, this is the largest forced displacement in the occupied Palestinian territory since 1967, when 350,000 people were displaced. And after 1948, where the numbers, of course, were much higher. But this is the this is the reality. How can it be? How can Israel displace 1,200 people to create a firing zone, a firing zone which is an area for the for the military to to be trained? It's it's inhumane. It's unconscionable. It makes no sense whatsoever, and it's also bringing um, a lot of despair and and destruction. Thanks. And I, I found myself thinking as as you're talking about this. I think. It's worth pointing out for, for folks who are watching and listening this, the Israeli government, when it comes to, the Israeli government considers the presence of Palestinians in the area to be illegal. And the argument is they're simply implementing the law. I think it's important to note that the Israeli government has, has performed um, feats of legal 
Um, I mean, it, it's beyond miracles in order to, to ensure that settlers who go in and, and settle in violation of Israeli law on land that even Israel recognizes belongs to private Palestinian owners, Israel has basically gone to the extent of literally um, literally destroying the rule of law, even in their own eyes, in order to make yes. sure that the lives of settlers are not inconvenienced. The idea being, and this is the idea behind what's called the, regu the regulation law, which is one of the, 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 the fact that the Israeli, uh, the Israeli Supreme Court objected to some aspects of this law is one of the reasons why we now have a government that is going to essentially um, take down the Supreme Court. But, but that regulation law is based on the idea that the, the fabric of life and the quality of life of, of Israeli settlers has to be respected above all else. And there has to be a way to make sure that you don't disturb them because they meant well and they're living where they're living. There's gotta be a way to keep them there. On the other hand, Palestinians, that never applies. And Masafariata is just, I think, a glaring example as we have likely the going ahead with the, the ripping, ripping apart the lives of more than uh, there are 1200 Palestinians, men, women, and children, while in parallel, the Israeli government, this new government is committed to go ahead and find a way to quickly legalize what is illegal settler construction all over the West Bank, because mm -hmm. above all else, the rights of those settlers has to be respected. I mean, that that's where we are today. And that, that I think is, you know, it, it, it exemplifies what is occupation. Um, so I, I want to. Uh, there's a lot more to get into. I want to ask you. You referred before to the criminal, the criminal side of this of a war crime and legal obligations. What are specifically the legal obligations of the international community, including the U.S. and the EU, in the face of what is happening and what is likely to soon happen in Masafariata? You know, what what should and must they be doing if if they're following the rules uh, to prevent a war crime in the making? And, and what kind of tools do they have at their disposal, should they want to? Yeah, um, <clears throat> if you don't mind, Lara, I would like also to, I would like to elaborate on a point which is quite significant, also in my in my own work. Um, I, as I said, I agree with you that Masafariata is not an isolated situation and epitomizes what is happening to uh, the entire occupied Palestinian territory through different regimes, because Gaza is always kept aside and seems to be another story, but is not. I want to stress the fact that Israel has no sovereignty over the territory which militarily occupies and keeps under blockade, including Gaza. So the, 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 when, while I answer your question of what are the legal obligations, I would like to think of the entire illegal regime um, that Israel of domination and sorry to say terror that Israel maintains over the, the OPT um, should face. Because the UN Charter, as I was saying, affords multiple measures to prevent and address the commission of war crimes. The primary, the, the primary responsibility of, is vested with the Security Council to maintain peace and security. And I particularly refer to Chapter 7, which includes uh, measures not involved the use of armed force, like the complete or partial interruption of economic relations, communications, diplomatic relations, as well as demonstrations. Um, and as a last resort, 
military operations. Now, international crimes stem, stem from international norms of a peremptory character that are, as I was saying, absolute and cannot be derogated. So the, the reason, the seriousness of their content translates into erga omnes obligations, which uh, mean a, a third state's duty to comply with. So the, U, uh, the, 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 the US and European Union, to mention a few, are under the obligation to use this political, economic, and diplomatic measures that the UN Charter um, referred to, uh, including in the absence of a UN Security uh, Council um, resolution, because eventually economic diplomatic measures can be taken by any states um, in the face of uh, such a prolonged and continuous um, series of uh, uh, alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity. A major air army suppliers as major army suppliers, the US and the EU, particularly the US, um, which I recall the 3.8 um, million US dollars budget goes to the uh, Israeli army uh, and exchange. Billion, billion with a B, 3.8 billion. Yeah, billion. Did, did I say million? No, no, billion, 3.8 billion uh, US, uh, US dollars go to uh, the Israeli army. Uh, and I was saying maintain also an ex a vivid exchange of military trainings. All these should end immediately. And also the trade of arms and system systems manufactured by Israel. This is what um, uh, complying with international law and erga omnes obligations uh, means. You know, um, and I'll conclude with this. I fear that it will be hard to continue to speak about international law to the Palestinians if even this, even an event so uh, so uh, uh, absolutely outrageous, like the displacement of 1,200 people cannot be stopped. Um, and Palestinians today were telling me we don't want to be left alone with Batim. This is what they were reporting. I think that we cannot ask them to have faith in international law anymore after uh, if these plans go uh, go ahead, because the international community is doing everything it can to prove the Palestinian that international law doesn't count, that human rights do not count, and peaceful resistance doesn't lead to anything, especially Masafariyata, which is a symbol of peaceful resistance. It's active youth called themselves youth of sumud, the youth of resilience. Well, the enactment of the expulsions will be a defeat of, uh, of civic resistance and in the in the right in the face of uh, of all of us who believe in international law as a as a way out to the current impasse. Yeah, I think that's a, an incredibly important point. And I, I guess I want to ask you, you know, assuming Israel does go ahead and, and carry out ethnic cleansing in Masafariyata, which at this point feels almost inevitable, what potential avenues do Palestinians and Palestinian rights activists have for accountability, justice, repair, reparations, etc.? Um, I mean, we have pending questions before the ICC and now the ICJ. Um, I mean, can can you talk about that? Because that is, yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of us who who watched this over the years, it it does it 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 is hard almost to avoid the conclusion that by either either deliberately or just by by happenstance, the the international and Israeli policies have combined 
to effectively cut off all avenues for Palestinians to pursue their rights, to pursue justice, um, and, and sort of put them in a corner of either you roll over and allow yourself to get kicked in the stomach over and over and over, or you turn to weapons and that's illegitimate and you're terrorists. Um, it, it seems like everything else is being cut off, including the right to you know, organize economic boycotts or to pressure the international community via you know, whatever means would be acceptable for coming from you know, people supporting Ukraine, for example. Hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, speaking of, of Ukraine, uh, there is there is again one thing that comes to my mind that some states can still um, uh, go back to a principle stand and implement measures, the measures afforded, afforded by the UN Charter. So including economic and diplomatic sanctions as uh, prescribed thereby. Um, and I was thinking, as you're hearing you, um, that the way, I mean, an illust illustrative um, case of how these measures can be taken is precisely uh, the most recent Russia invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, economic sanctions, divestment for, from corporate sectors, boycotts of institutions and good and to diplomatic communication and opposing to diplomatic relations have been very swift and including by countries which had very close ties with Russia. So I keep on having faith on the political process. It cannot be completely um, completely immoral as it is being toward the Palestinians. But meanwhile, um, in order to have justice, because all, all the legal avenues have been exhausted inside Israel and because there is no regional um, mechanism for them, but the only avenue that really remains is the ICC, the International Criminal Court, which should accelerate proceedings on the situation of, of Palestine and the prosecutor should allow the investigation to uh, to start in a in a more visible way, because the eviction of Masafariata is the only tip of the iceberg of the plethora, as we have said, of alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity committed against the Palestinian. Mm, it's uh, it, many of us believe that an ICC investigation um, would help address the case of impunity and send a strong message to the international community that what Israel is doing will no longer be tolerated. Um, and this is also going to, in a way, restate the reputation of the ICC as an international criminal mechanisms of last resort, where other means uh, prove to be unwilling or unable, um, unavailable. Um, now, one thing, one other thing that has not been fully explored, I mean, universal jurisdiction, yes, has been explored and has been hijacked by political uh, maneuvers as well. But I do believe that domestic courts are also important options, particularly because many um, of those involved in the commission of war crimes and crimes against humanity, particularly those from the colonies, the settlers, have double nationality. And I think that this is an important and uh, issue to keep in mind because probably it's going to be more accessible than uh, than what should be the most accessible to the Palestinians, which is the ICC. Fascinating. Uh, I'll be this, the the issue of domestic courts has come up often in in the Israeli Palestinian domain. It's come up more often used as a weapon against Palestinians and Palestinian rights activists. It'll be interesting to see if we see a shift in that going forward. I want to sort of pull the camera out and and first ask you, and you are obviously deeply engaged across the whole of uh, of Palestine 
Um, for a lot of people, it's you, know, you see it as fragmented, fragmented areas with different, different area, different interests, different concerns. You're looking at the whole of the occupied territories. You know, for a lot of us looking at what's what's threatened in Misafariata, the, the the concern I think is 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 twofold. One that it will do it and get away with it, and 1,200 people or so will be, you know, just deprived of of the most basic rights. And the concern that this is a pre that if Israel is permitted to do this and get away with it without consequence, impunity, as always, um, it'll be the precursor to further acts of this kind of ethnic cleansing in the West Bank, particularly in Area C, but not only in Area C. Can can you talk about um, whether you share that concern and 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 why you think that matters? And when people, I mean, people should be engaging because it's a war crime on its own. It shouldn't be if you let this happen, more will happen. But th there is a Th those are not disconnected concerns, right? No, no, exactly. I mean, and this is this is something that has come up in the past. If you can displace a population of one thousand two hundred people, which means the destruct the uprooting of one thousand two hundred people, the destruction of uh, the, the 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 homes uh, where these people have kept everything together under enormous challenges because. Whomever has visited Masafariata, including myself, has said, oh, my God, why, how, how do they manage to stay here? Because it's not that, hey, they are, they are really hanging there to preserve the life in paradise. Life is very difficult as is, but these people are resisting because it's their land and it's a sort of a collective. Effort, collective effort. So yes, I share the fear that this will prove, I mean, because impunity, granting Israel's impunity for every uh, alleged violation, uh, every alleged war crimes and every alleged um, uh, crime against humanity, for every violation that has committed, and it's a fully documented, uh, um, fully documented reality. Probably the most, uh, the best documented um, uh, scenario of human rights violations, violations of international law at large of modern era, the the reality in the OPT. So, because all of it has been tolerated, this has emboldened Israel to a point that today, yes, it can displace one thousand two hundred people. In a, in, without even facing re serious reprisal. This is the thing. So, of course, it's going to prove that the Palestinians are just subjects under domination and fully disposable. This is what's going to, what's going to demonstrate. The, um, I, I find myself thinking as Ravina's conversation, you think about how this will play, how this plays out in the, in the public, in the public debate. And I'm, I'm, anticipating um we spend a lot of time these days focusing on on the efforts to redefine anti-semitism to essentially mean most importantly if not exclusively criticism of israel and and the argument i'm imagining is is going to come up when Masafariyata is ethnically cleansed is well other people are doing it and they're doing it more and therefore if you're focusing on israel you're an anti-semite so it's 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 the the script writes itself, um, and it's quite extraordinary because twenty years ago, saying well other people are doing worse ethnic cleansing than we are would not have been considered a particularly effective argument for defending Israel and its righteousness. But that is that is where we are today. Um, yeah. Again, zooming out, we are in an era of surging illiberalism. It almost seems you know 
just trite to even say it, um, and, and an era of, of even greater erosion of a pretense of respect for international laws and, and legal norms and norms of behavior than we have seen in the past. I want you to talk about, as someone who is who is deep steeped in the international legal um, environment, what you see as the broader impacts of what is happening in the occupied territories in general, and specifically Masafariata, where you have what is effectively viewed as a first world liberal democracy acting thus far with impunity and, and on the verge of carrying out what is a very specific and well-documented war crime of the kind that lots of countries around the world are probably are doing, would be very happy to do, and would begin would see Israel doing it. I'm, I'm thinking of someone like Modi and what we're seeing in India, would see it as a, as a wonderful precedent and model um, for how to, how, to, how to ethnically cleanse people and get away with it. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, uh, I might partially repeat myself, but I think it's important um, to say that over the past 55 years, the tolerance of Israel's continued um, non-compliance with international legal obligations has emboldened Israeli impunity and has tarnished the image, the trustworthiness, and the role of international community as a whole. This exceptionalism has undermined, of course, the primacy of international rule of law, and it's it's been, as you say, a damning lesson for a damning lesson for others who know that brute force leads to greater results than compliance with a uh, with a uh, international law. And breach of international law bears no consequences if one is protected by the right friends. As I said to the General Assembly on the day I presented my first report, when human rights are true just for a small number of people, they betray the very promise of universality of human rights, and they prove no more than uh, the rules of a club. And this is what's happening. Israel's behavior is consolidating the, the international law system that has emerged of the uh, out of the ashes of the world of World War II as a as a as a as a compromise system, as a system that only favors and protects one part of the world, which no surprise, it's still Western countries to which Israel is associated. This is what's happening. Yeah, I I was joking with someone. We're increasingly in an, in an era where laws that were framed as protecting the rights of the weak are now used exclusively to protect the privilege of the strong, um, which is just turning things really very much on their heads. Um, okay, so we're running out of time or we've gone way over time. You've been very patient. My last question, I want to circle back to you and your mandate as Special Rapporteur. And, and can you talk about what your role is as you see it with respect to Masafariyata? And, and to the extent that you're willing to talk about it, can you talk about what are your plans? Yeah, on Masafariyata, I will continue the work of bilateral uh, mobilization, meaning raise the case in every meeting with uh, authority, authorities I have, and of course, uh, keep on keep on documenting and reporting because my audience eventually is made of uh, is made of states. Um, and but I also engage, and this leads me to the to the second part of your question. I mean, as a rapporteur, as a special rapporteur, I had to ask myself pretty early on what kind of special rapporteur I want to be because the situation, in fact, last year has been evolving, uh, has been spiraling down pretty fast. So I cannot be the one setting the law because international law is very clear. Is um, is not about 
standard setting. And it's not about unveiling the unknown, although I'm also investigating on practices which have which are have remained completely and inexplicably to me underreported. And this will be um, this will be clear in the second report I'm writing. But I said, I want to be the one which creates a space for discussion and for debate, including other actors. And I've been quite active uh, toward Jewish communities in Israel and abroad. Not very easy, not obvious, but it's happening. And, um, and with Palestinian communities in the diaspora, I mean, we need to be many to, uh, to mobilize and advocate for the report for the respect of international law in the occupied Palestinian refugees. This is not the job of the special rapporteur, but the special rapporteur can help elevate the discussion and, and the messages for returning to the primacy of international, of international law. And the report I'm writing right now is about carcerality. So arrest and detention as key to the policy of control that Israel maintains in the occupied Palestinian territory, but also from a geographic perspective. We have this tendency of referring to Gaza as an open-air prison. But in fact, I, I, I think that the overall territory under occupation resembles a prison with different regimes of carcerality. And this is what I'm describing. Excellent. So that gives me a lead in to remind you that I know to tell you that I will be asking you probably to come back and talk about that report when it comes out. For folks who are listening, I also want to remind people if they haven't seen this in the media, that as rapporteur Francesca has not been permitted by Israel to travel um, to the area that she is covering. This is one of the aspects of occupation that when Israel says there is no occupation and, and yet and yet you know, if you want to visit the Palestinians and see things on the ground in Palestine, you are obligated to get permission from Israel to travel. Um, so you you mentioned you had done a, a Zoom visit to Masafariyata today. I think it, it's it's worth noting that that is because you are not permitted by the Israeli authorities yeah. to go there yourself as yet. Maybe that will change. We can all hope that will change. <laughs> I will do everything in my power to change it and to challenge it because it's abnormal. And also the fact that everyone tolerates it as if it was a normal fact of life is not really proper. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's not proper at all. So we're going to have to stop there. You have been so generous with your time, Francesca. Thank you so much for joining me today. For our audience, thank you for listening and for watching. And don't forget, you can follow Francesca. I, maybe I didn't mention this. You should follow Francesca on Twitter. And her Twitter handle is at Frances, F-R-A-N-C-E-S-K-A-L-B-S. Um, I'll have that in the notes as well if I got that wrong. And finally, as always, I want to remind people to subscribe to Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. That way you won't miss any of the great content that we post pretty much every week. And you can also find the podcast and video of our podcast via our website, www.fmep.org. And with that, we'll end it here. Thank you, Francesca Albanese. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts.